You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, I wanted to talk a little bit today about some really interesting steps that are being taken to sort of create new groups, create new areas for thinking in the community. And there are two that I wanted to mention in particular. First of all, the artificial intelligence sector deal that was announced recently by the the UK government. And then also ELIS, the European Lab for Learning and Intelligent Systems. So let's let's start with ELIS. This is a call from a number of researchers who are prominent in the field, a number of whom we've been fortunate to have on the show, to set up a sort of a pan European research group. Just to give some context, so uh, it's it's a letter, sort of an open letter, but to, I guess, uh, European and EU government and potential non-EU government leaders, which is a sort of, I guess, a call for action around, I guess, it's machine learning. So it's rather nicely, it's, it's not AI, it's actually, I think, specifically doesn't use the term AI. It's specifically machine learning, although it talks about AI investments for other places. But it's interesting that they te- that they that ML is at the heart of the societal wave. So it is it is mentioning AI driven by ML, which I think is certainly a perspective I'd agree with. So and in fact they define it using uh, machine learning to include areas of AI that strongly influenced and driven by machine learning, much of computer vision, natural language, and speech. So it's but it's mainly focused on machine learning, which is. Um, I guess what many of the alternative organizations that they're sort of talking about, such as the Vector Institute in uh, Toronto, are also looking at. And it's sort of, I don't know, a call to arms in some sense, where um, the suggestion is that Europe isn't keeping up with North America. And it definitely, well, you know, North America, not including, I, I suppose, we're not talking about Mexico, Mexican investment so much as Canadian and U.S. investment, but also Chinese investment. And I think this is interesting because Europe's particularly in, historically had a very strong part in, in what we would say is modern machine learning. And, and many of the individuals who uh, have played a part in that are signatories on the letter, Zubin Garamani, Thomas Hoffman, Andreas Krauser. Brendan Shulkoff, Yair Weiss, uh, they specifically include Israel in the call, Francis Bart, Matthias Petka, uh, Max Welling, these, and Zubin Garamani. Th- these are leading researchers. And the premise is that actually we're in a difficult position because of the amount of new industrial money that's come in and the pressures on people to go to U.S. positions and, I guess, a perceived failure to keep up. Yeah, and I've, one thing that I found particularly interesting about the the open letter, this this call to action, is sort of on the halfway through the second page of the proposal, it states, Ellis researchers can found startups based on IP they generate. Ellis does not aim to optimize short-term licensing income, rather aims at sustained economic impact in Europe. I think that that's really crucial because... A lot of people are super excited about about that short-term bump that you can get by being able to be active in this field. It's very interesting that because I've certainly I've been involved in IP spin-outs from universities and also, you know, on the other side acquisitions. And I think that they're driving at something that is problematic in a lot of institutes where universities want a large portion of the intellectual property associated with a spin-out, which in this area my understanding is that this is debilitating to the ability of the startup to find additional funders. They call it a sleeping partner. If that partner isn't active in the decision-making but has a large portion of the output, a lot of investors are even more frightened of that, sort of um, 
because I think that the intention of an investor is, you know, I think early on for these things to be successful, they have to be quite driven in a certain direction. I mean, that's just my impression. I'm not VC or an angel investor, but but talking to people, that is a problem. And it, it, it did come up in various discussions I've had in policy that, for example, I don't know the situation in Europe, but in the UK, a lot of universities put in a 40 or 50 percent provision, which makes sense sometimes, I think, when you think about things like spin outs based on putative drug targets, where a lot of research was done around a specific target. Very often, uh, once the spin out's set up, the work is not so much in the idea, the work is in the delivery. And, and I think that transition in machine learning is very different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, they say the call to action specifically says Ellis should start in 2018. So that's this year. It's, it's interesting because it seems at one stage highly ambitious. Yeah. But then at another way, when you think about what you've heard coming out of Macron's government and also there's, I know there's been an enormous amount of work in uh, Germany driven by Angela Merkel, who has been returned as chancellor there. And they, they highlight one of those, the Max Planck Institute, um, Cyber Valley. And I believe Prairie is the, uh, the French um, one that they talk about. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds ambitious, but in some sense, they are, I guess what they're saying there is that you can practically make use of existing um, initiatives. But then they're also, so that's, um, that's also a, uh, a sort of clearly um, that could exclude other non-European countries, because those are the two main axes of Europe, if you think that UK is planning to leave the EU. But then they also call out the Switzerland, the UK and Israel. And the Netherlands, which is, um, you know, of course, Max Welling's team's there and Qualcomm's invested there. I mean, if we and actually look at the list of what they're sort of listing at the front, large U.S. players have started research labs in those places. Amazon in Cambridge and Tübingen, Apple in Cambridge, Facebook in Paris, Google DeepMind in Zurich, Paris and London, Microsoft in Cambridge. That's a long standing one. And Qualcomm most recently, I think, in, in Amsterdam. It's, as they say, that the, the reason why those companies move there is, is to access local talent. But the interesting thing is they're saying that they contribute to local ecosystems. And just to give you an example of this, Microsoft is longstanding in Cambridge. It's been there since 1998, I think. And the body of researchers who came to the UK to work at Microsoft and now distributed across the UK, Tora Greppel, for example, was uh, someone who came to the UK to work at Microsoft, still lives locally. Uh, but works for DeepMind in London. The number of people in that position who, uh, um, Ulrich Parquet is another example of that, came into Microsoft, now works at DeepMind. So, so these things, they do get respond to initial talent, but then they also act as sort of hosts of talent. But I think that the letter is more about um, the balance between that and university departments. And the, the, the sense in the letter is that that balance is shifted too far towards these industrial entities. And and, and what does that mean sort of for the future? And I think when in particular, I mean, people might have this sense of, oh, we're all there, you know, in terms of AI and it's going to happen soon. I think, you know, none of the letter signatories would think that, you know, we're talking a, a long period of time. So that's why investment is important, because uh, otherwise it may be that the, you know, um, the centers of activity move elsewhere. In fact, I, I saw a depressing tweet recently that said something like, oh, this is UK specific. The UK can't be world leading in AI, so maybe we should become world leading in the ethics of AI. I mean, why do I find that tweet depressing? Well, if that's the perception now, I mean, 
six years ago, seven years ago, it was unarguable that we were world leading in AI, AI being ML. I mean, it, just looking at the groups we had here, UCL, Cambridge, Oxford, Edinburgh, you know, and then people dotted around like myself at Sheffield, Glasgow. I mean, it was unarguable. That, um, so if people are making claims like that, I, I'm kind of worried, certainly for the UK, about what's going on. Because there's, there's either we've fallen back very rapidly, which is quite possible, given overall lack of investment. Or the perception of what AI is is different f now from what the reality, or, you know, meaning that the next wave of AI t in order to realize it is not in the UK. And I mean, also when you consider that DeepMind is here on, as well as, uh, you know, Amazon, K um, Apple, Microsoft, you know, it seems a funny thing to say, but people, you know, I, I saw that tweeted. It was a funny thing. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned it because one of the other things I wanted to chat about today is is the UK sector deal, right, which has just been announced, the artificial intelligence sector deal, which is not only setting up the Office of Artificial Intelligence and sort of making strategy about investment and, and integration and all that, but is also establishing a center for data ethics and innovation, right? And we have all of this coming sort of on top of the establishment of the Alan Turing Institute. So there seems to be a lot of formal action in this area uh, too in, in the UK. Yeah, it's interesting. This has followed on from UK government reports on AI, the whole presenting report, their signatures on this strategy, and the industrial strategy, which is sort of, um, I gave some evidence to that board, and it's a sort of unusual thing because we haven't had an industrial strategy since the 70s in the UK. It's been considered, it's been, I think, and it's also, and, and sort of, a, in the moment we have a conservative government, and, and I think there's a sense that this also smacks of sort of central planning um, when the conservative, for those in other countries, is uh, sort of, well, that's Margaret Thatcher, and, and she, she led, you know, we talk about Reaganomics, but, uh, you know, I think that there's large doses of Thatcher in there. So, so historically, the conservative party has been against that. And I think that... It's interesting when you sort of read the initiatives and, and the investment, it looks exciting. But then I also wonder what it means to sort of centrally plan your AI. And, and it could mean very good things, depending on how things are set up, or it could mean sort of odd things. You know, like, I don't know what I do when I get into the office for AI in the morning. Maybe something. <laughs> but I mean, if we go back to what it would have meant in the 70s, it would have meant, I mean, um, I talk about this uh, television series try a uh, three-part series on the bbc in 79 it called the um i think it's called the silicon factor which was about silicon chips I if you hear what they say it, it means it meant for them like what they expected government to do it would have been you know sort of training and working with small businesses to to allow them to how to understand silicon i mean 79 was i think the year that uh, margaret thatcher came to power so, so it didn't quite pan out like that but what did happen in the UK, I think perhaps more in line with this letter and also for the rest of Europe, what did happen in the UK is we had an extremely interesting, very diverse silicon chip-based business, uh, the BBC computer, the Sinclair computer, a lot of it local to um, Cambridge, where I'm based, and, and many of the echoes. So one of the big investors in uh, AI startups locally is Herman Hauser, who was a founder of Acorn, and, and that actually eventually led to ARM, all sorts of technical innovation in this space. But in the end, most of that innovation was sort of squashed by larger multinationals. So that's sort of interesting. The, the, the flavor of the European letter, I think, has echoes of history. Uh, Olivetti actually came in and bought Acorn. Olivetti aren't much to be heard of today. Many of the uh, European-based large tech companies don't really, uh, 
I guess the Franti were working closely with the University of Manchester, were um, washed away by sort of larger market forces. So, yeah, I mean, it's very complex. I, I don't know if that's the sort of things they're worrying about. I would have thought that another thing to worry about is how you deploy, and, and in fact, they talk about it in the statement, how you deploy these things safely and efficiently as much as possible. And I think that's more the center for data ethics and innovation. I think there's an interim center for that. So again, a lot of this will be about finding its role. H how do these pieces fit in, I suspect? Because I unless, the, um, un unless the current government and, and the governments the world over have suddenly decided to return to sort of five-year plans and centralized planning for our industry, then it's, I presume it's going to be something a bit more like that. Yeah. If we're moving into five-year plans, there are other things to think about. <laughs> yeah. And they, they announced large investment, but I don't know. I think the extent to which often these large investments are repurposed, there already is large investment every year in, in the UK. So I don't really fully understand the details of that. I haven't sort of spoken to people who are familiar, whether it's new investment or whether it's just a refocusing of investment. I think that's interesting as well, because I, I think probably the period, the best period for investment is, is where Canada were. So Canada uh, with CIFAR. Probably, I think that's about a seven million Canadian dollar grant, something at that scale. Probably the best seven million the Canadian government had ever spent. Now, of course, there's a bunch of other millions that they probably spent that came to nothing, but they were very, very far seeing in this area and quick to double slash treble down on it. And you're seeing the results of that with all the activity in Montreal, as well as Toronto. So, I mean, clearly Toronto. But Toronto was figuring big with Jeff Hinton. I mean, Yosha was in Montreal. That's been big as well. But the number of companies that have sort of moved into Montreal of late, DeepMind are there as well, right, with uh, Joao Pinot. So if we were to list the sort of places they've opened up, they're in uh, DeepMind in Alberta as well. I mean, we're talking about, I don't know the exact Canadian population, but compared to Europe, which is like 350 million, right, it's a little bit smaller. It, it's perhaps larger in landmass, I think. <laughs> Like, it's a big old country. But I don't think they're investing in the landmass here. They get natural resources from that. I think they're investing in people. And, uh, of course, a lot of people move there. A lot of great researchers. Raquel Urteson, who uh, is one that immediately pops to mind. Uh, David Duvano, who is Canadian, came out of Canada, but goes back. Ryan Adams spent time there. You know, it, it's a who's lose list. I, I've not worked in Canada myself, but the number of people have, who are in Canada or have been in Canada... Hugo La Rochelle going back um, to start up Google Brain in, I think, Montreal. Um, you know, it's just uh, astonishing what's going on there. So Canada is the model, but the question is, like, are you too late to the starting game? Do you, do you have to have a slightly different strategy, I think? I think that's the uh, interesting question here. Definitely. Well, we'll have a link to both the artificial intelligence sector deal announcement and that 2017 white paper that outlines the strategy and the open letter for Ellis. And hopefully we'll hear more about these things in the coming weeks. You can find that all on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is about AI winters, right? This is the idea that there's a huge arc of excitement and everybody's super psyched and then the bottom falls out when maybe the hype doesn't meet the reality of the research. And our listener asks, what do we need to do to make sure that the next time the bubble pops, because every bubble has to pop, that it's a plateau and not a winter? Mm. Yeah, I, I guess I'm on record as I think it's going to pop in 2019 that's a courageous statement isn't it 
coming up. Yeah. Coming up. I'm going to be the one. Everyone will forget, I hope, when we get to 2020. <laughs> I'll be like, no, no, the alien ship's coming next year. Sorry, that's a different prediction, isn't it? Um, no, I, I think 2019, based purely on, like, I think kickoff is 2012 with the ImageNet paper. And then I think that the internet bubble burst around 2001. And I would put kickoff around 94. I, I don't know. That's I'm not giving you a specific... It probably a little it could be before that so that's seven it's years it's based on two data points not nothing you know yeah look at that you know i work with bayesian methods i can do this stuff i have i have priors <laughs> you have a prior i have a Perfect. prior okay well what's my prior coming i think it's the systemics that what are these things driven by they're driven by expectations and reality and the difference between two paces it's like the period over which technology can deliver versus the um, period of people expect it to deliver so investment decisions are often made on with two to three year horizons even if some of them are much longer investing the majority are of that form and technology i think it delivers its promise on sort of seven to eight year horizons you know what i think it will go longer than that the effect that i'm not accounting for is i think investor patience is much higher now than it was in uh, in in the dot-com so I think that the seven years is too short because of that. In practice, uh, investors are probably more patient, actually largely due to Amazon, because Amazon uh, went through the whole, you know, and actually took a long time to get back up. So, but but I think, you know, you look at Tesla and Uber, I don't think that that could have happened, the, the length of time they're given to do something. I, I don't think that's possible. 17 years ago so so it may not be till 2024 or something i don't know 2025 i think it's coming and i i think that the way you try and soften the blow is you sort of warn about it and um you um invest in things that are longer term that don't rely on i don't know don't i don't know what i mean by don't rely on the terminology but but going back to mike's uh blog post from the other week you know investing a company investing in data infrastructure is not going to miss out on anything because I tell you what, data infrastructures in companies are really poor, relatively speaking. A company that sits down and thinks carefully about how they're assimilating their data and brings it together to one place, rather than spending millions on deep neural networks to do to be automatic accountants, you know, is going to be fine. A company that that thinks it can solve everything with some magical algorithmic solution and bets a lot of money on that. Which, by the way, Marconi kind of did around the internet and almost disappeared as a company as a result, is going to be in trouble and when the dot .ai bust comes. So softening the blow is down to the individual responsibilities, I think. Definitely. Yeah, engaging in the conversation in a way that's going to allow you to learn more and sort of differentiate what's going on. I think that that's really the thing that you can do. That's the best seatbelt right now is to explore Find out what's really happening. Learn as much as you can. Um, and learn this, about the stuff that you should be excited about. And learn how to tell that apart from stuff that might look like it, but is just is not actually there yet. Yeah, don't get out of your seat and put your arms up. Because, don't, get, you know, <laughs> don't get out of your seat. Don't get out of your seat. The light, the fastened seat belt <laughs> light is on. Don't get out of your seat. Well, I think it is. I could, of course, be totally wrong. But that's the clever bit about speculation. You know, you can be <laughs> that's totally true. wrong. Yeah. If I am wrong, we'll just wipe all these recordings and yes. no one will ever know. Yes. 
If I'm right, I'm going to be playing it a day, every day. <laughs> if you have a speculation for when the bubble is going to burst, or if you'd like to vote for Neil's speculation of 2019 or 2020. and Or add if to, you think it's going to go up forever. Or, or if we're just going to keep expanding forever. You can tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS or write us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Christina Kulkloff, and she's Director of Platform and Agency Workers, Digitalization, and Trade for Uni Global Union. And we talked with her a couple of weeks back, and the first question we asked her, like we do with all of our guests, is how did you get where you are? What's been your path? What's your journey? Oh, it's been an amazing journey. I mean, when I finished university, I did my MA in England. And, uh, and and really, you know, it was so tough that year. I thought, no, no more academia. Yeah. And I moved back to Denmark where I'd lived before. But the university kept on phoning me and said, mm. hey, listen, we really want you back. Yeah. And da, da, da. You know, I finally went back to the university mm-hmm. and uh, was a labor market researcher for six years. Wow. Where I did a lot of studies, of course, on the unions, the employers and what was happening around the world and in Europe and. And the really special in the Nordic countries, the very special relationship between management and employees. Mm-hmm. But through that job, you know, I got to be quite well known for being a bit of a kick-ass uh, <laughs> keynote speaker and got uh, a phone call one day saying, listen, uh, hi, we're from the Nordic financial unions mm. and we're looking for a general secretary. Will you apply? And I went, ha, you know, stop flirting. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Who is uh, this? Yeah, sort of, uh, what, you know, I gave no speech for them and so on, but... But then I thought, hey, why not? Mm. You know, and so I applied and I had some, you know, ideas, way my background in the problems and challenges of unions and, and so on, of how they should change what should be done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I got the job. Mm. So moved to Stockholm in Sweden and was general secretary there for almost six years. Wow. Yeah, and it was it was an amazing, amazing period. I mean, it was just after the financial crisis, oh my and gosh. you know everything in the finance world was just totally hot on the agenda. Yeah, and I'm sure there in that area, things were particularly sort of yeah. a mess. Yeah, they really, I mean, they really were. And and you know, the relatively to the small size of the mm. Nordic region, the mm-hmm. banking industry was huge, and right. the insurance too. But we changed the whole organization wow. to be very sort of lobby orientated towards the EU and so on and had just, I would say, fun. You know, <laughs> it was amazing how the board of, of these of the unions who were affiliated were just, you know, totally on board on, you know, nice. we've got to do some change here. So and that's, you know, probably where I am best, you mm. know, I, in the change process. Mm. And this job really sort of taught me how great it is to work with something you believe in Mm -hmm. and that you know something about so you have the passion and the knowledge and amazing combo yeah so that was great but so where i landed today this is quite interesting because my very first job when i was a researcher was uh, on a nordic research project about international trade union cooperation so I went in and I was editor of one of the books and, and I went to my current workplace to interview the general secretary and some of the heads of departments. And when I left there after three days, I said to my assistant, one day I'm going to work there. <laughs> and now, you know, 16 years later, I, I now work Fulfilled there. Fulfilled your own prophecy. Yeah. That's so fantastic. It's, it's great. 
And tell me, tell me more about the job that you have now at the place that you prophesized where you would have it. Tell <laughs> yeah, me, it's, tell no, me I mean, it's just so fantastic. <laughs> the big chunk of what I do has everything to do with trying to understand AI, data, how all of this is disrupting labor markets, what will it mean in relation to the work we have, the types of work we have, how does that interplay with our human rights, our fundamental right. rights, and so on. So that's sort of the big part. And then, of course, you know, since since then, this whole thing about the gig economy right. has flourished. Right. And we organize people who work in temporary agency work. And, and uh, so we thought, OK, let's combine that with the platform work. So mm -hmm. I also globally uh, am responsible for those workers oh and trying to organize them and, and find out what's happening, really. I mean, a lot of our unions are number one, changing their statutes so they can organize the self-employed. Mm. You know, if you think about it, the history of unions, it was very much focused around the employee, the right. person working in the company, you know. At a physical place, who show, yeah. everybody who shows up at nine or everybody who shows up at three. Yeah, exactly. Totally. So now more and more of our unions across the world are now bringing in and welcoming and organizing the self-employed. Wow. Now there's a problem there, which is which is so outrageous. People who are self-employed and don't have employees of their own, they are by law regarded as single unit companies. Right. So they can join a union. But if we help them w um, bargain their wage, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in inverted commas, you can't see me doing that, <laughs> right, but yeah, it is, right, yeah. i.e. their cost, right. then we're building a cartel. Oh, and no. And then we're in breach of anti-competition law. Because you're creating monopoly. Because yeah. you're you're fixing we're agreeing prices. on the price. Exactly. <laughs> oh God. So these people who you can just imagine, they're forced to be self-employed, yeah. i.e. that they don't get paid unless there's a demand for their labor, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i.e. that they bear the risk of the market. They have in many countries no social security rights. Mm -hmm. So if they get ill, they have no income, you know, yeah. they have no pension yeah. rights and so on. And then on top of that, they cannot group together and try to up their income, right. which in the gig economy is very, very low right. in many places, because then they'll be in breach of competition law, right? Oh my God. So this is, you know, this is where we can see that the institutions in our society haven't followed with the times. Right. Right. So one of the things that we're pushing for is, of course, changing uh, competition law to accept that these single unit companies, companies, you know, workers, right can have the right to organize and the right to collective bargaining. Yeah, it's not the robber barons anymore. No. It's individuals working It's individuals. And, you know, if you think about the consequences of this on the long run. Yeah. So you have people who were former colleagues, maybe, who are now competitors. Right. Fighting for whatever job is available, wherever that job may be. Yeah. You know, what consequences will this individualization have on our communities, on our social cohesion. Right. And I think, you know, and, and daring being political here, the Trump vote, the Brexit vote in England are expressions of a growing discontent. Right. I think it's really interesting because people used to sort of organize both their, the organized politically, right. organize their social lives around who they worked with, who they were in this physical proximity mm. to, but we just don't have those sort of, um, you know, boundary boxes anymore. No, exactly. And, and you know, this is the thing, a lot of people say, for example, about the young, oh, they don't have a collective will, you know, they're right. not interested in all of this. Yeah. And, 
you know, they just want to go free riding on their own and all of that. Yeah. And you hear that a lot of times. And this is so wrong. Yeah. You know? Young people, they are very ideological. They have, you know, they will maybe swap and choose their ideologies and their collectiveness. You know, one day might be Am Amnesty International. Right. The year later, it might be Save the Dogs, the Cats or the Planet or... And then it might be the union movement. Right. But what we have to really figure out is how do we bring them into this collective whilst they're interested in right. it? How do we boost it whilst they're there? Yeah. And how do we, as you say, reach out to them? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, fundamentally, human beings are social beings. And people who are forced to be on their own, I think all would seek to a collective if there was a collective. And we see that in some of the gig platforms, online meeting spaces yeah. and so on, seeking advice, seeking support from one another. So this is where we as unions are now really working on developing some ideas of becoming digital meeting spaces, but also, of course, offering the physical space where mm. people can come mm -hmm. uh, and meet and, and, and find that collective that I think we all need. Yeah, yeah, the old idea of the union hall, right? Well, exactly, the community hall. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was giving a workshop for the Irish Labour Party. And I, you know, I said to them, I said, you know, you should bring back the roots, you yeah. know, the community hall. Yeah. Awaken it again. Where you, you know, one day there was a cooking class, the next day a political discussion, you know, the third day this and that. Yeah. Because I think we all need that sense of belonging, right? We had all of our Girl Scout meetings in UAW 245. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you totally. go. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think, you know, this is, this will be really, really important. Yeah, definitely. And then my last portfolio, which seems, you know, from the offset when I say trade agreements right. like TISA, yeah. TPP, yeah. all of that, it seems like, oh, this is a bit of an odd thing. But what's really interesting is that in these trade agreements, in the WTO, the World Trade Organization, they are now discussing something they call e-commerce. Mm. And, you know, when you say e-commerce, I think, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really irritating. eBay when I know, but when I try to buy something on the Internet and then I'm told, no, sorry, you don't ship to your country. Right, yeah, you know? right, right. So I think, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But then you go in and say, hmm, well, what, how do they define it? Right. And it's all about the free flow of data. Oh, my God. It's about making sure countries don't keep the data in their countries. It's about technology transfer and so on. So suddenly these three portfolios just really make sense together, right? One huge thing. That's so yeah. fascinating that you mentioned e-commerce as like the 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 watchword for one group about yeah. the free flow of data and I that know. kind of thing. Yeah. What uh, what do you what do you think is the most sort of crucial piece of information that has the most number of different names depending on who you're talking to? <laughs> e-commerce yeah okay no but it's such a word that people it's become a household thing now, yeah right? yeah oh yeah yeah i can shop at home i can buy things at home and you know just walking down the street here i was walking behind two ladies and they were talking about yeah that one of their parcels hadn't arrived uh, and then the other one said yeah but i get all of my shopping online now right you know? yeah right and then people say yeah this is convenient right this is this is a really convenient thing and then you start thinking about well this whole word convenience right you know how everything suddenly is in your smartphone right mm -hmm. it's convenient for you to order a pizza it's convenient for you to send a message to a friend yeah it's convenient for you to to order something online and have it shipped it's convenient that the flight company you know sends you an sms saying you know check in now and all right that. so everything has become very convenient very fast 
very quick. Yeah. But what are the consequences of that? Right. At the at the cost of perhaps other values that we well, would like to see more, precisely. maybe, but aren't acting upon. Precisely. And this is what we see across the world, actually, this increasing individualization. Mm -hmm. You know, where people, both how they work, so in the gig economy, for example, where they're forced to be self-employed, yeah. cloud working, people sitting at home for hours upon end doing click work or whatever. Yeah. But we also have an increasing isolation, despite Facebook, despite Twitter, despite right. all of this. Right. You know, the mental health issues around the world are, are very serious, and, and the, the number of young people on a depression, with a depression, it's just on the rise. So yeah. this this is something, this is a big red flag, right? It yeah. filled the red flags, right, to be honest. Right, right. Yeah, totally. So yeah. tell me more about your work with the unions. I think for our American listeners, speaking as and as an American, when, and I grew up in Detroit, so when I think yeah. of the unions, I think of the auto workers, and that yeah. holds a very specific <laughs> yeah. thing in my mind. Yeah. Um, so so tell me more about your work with the unions and, and how organized labor is sort of um, preparing or not preparing for the mm. way that work is changing. So uni represents about 20 million workers wow. in the private services sectors. So that's everything from private care to retail, to banking and insurance, oh my gosh. to security guards, professional cleaners, and so on. And it's these services sectors which are on the rise, really, employment-wise, uh, around the world. And you know the way we work with it, we have lots of meetings. We have what we call the Leadership Summit, where the last two years we focused on all of this with AI and data. And then I give lots and lots of speeches. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I'm out there, we do some trainings, mm. we discuss the implications of this. And then recently, just before Christmas, we issued two very key documents, mm. um, which, and I'll, you know, if I can spend a couple of words on that, one of them has to do with workers' data rights. Ah. And I found out when I started looking into this whole question about data ownership, data control, and so on, what regulation is there in the world that protects the data used by companies in companies, right. monitored on their workers, and so on? And apart from a few countries in the European Union that, who have adopted a certain particular paragraph in the GDPR, there are no specific laws anywhere in the world oh, on wow. workers' data. And then I was thinking, well, hang on here. You know, this whole concept of management by algorithm, right. which we read suddenly more and more about in the press and, mm -hmm. and elsewhere, going, well, if I as a worker do not have the right of access right. to the data that yeah. is being mined on me or right. used by the company, if I can't, as a, as a shop steward, you know, say to the company, you know, I'd like to have insight into what data you're using because yeah. why have the last eight people who received a promotion all been men? Right. Or something, yes. you know. Yeah. How can we check that the, the data being used is within the law, mm -hmm. is morally correct, is ethically acceptable, right. is anti-discriminative and so on? So if we don't get these check and balances in place, which I've wrote, wrote about, we have 10 principles for this, then you know you can just imagine that management is shedding responsibility to yeah, the algorithm, right? And workers will have no right of explanation, no right of access, and the whole check and balance in the labor market will be gone. Right. Yeah. And depending on what sort of um, fluency management above the 
alg management algorithm has well, in the in the system that they're using, they exactly. may not even be able to sort of dive into it. Well, exactly. I mean, this fantastic book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction mm -hmm. by Cathy O'Neill. I mean, some of the examples in her book, you know, you just wouldn't believe, mm. number one, the stupidity of the algorithm, <laughs> you know, and how it was coded. The yeah. algorithm was doing its job, but right. how it was programmed to do it was stupid. But also that the management, the people who then acted on what the right. algorithm said, yeah. couldn't even explain it. Right. Yeah. So there's this huge move in the community that makes these things for around the ideas of uh, uh, transparency and interpretability. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of things do you hope for in that conversation? Yeah. For us, uh, we've adopted a concept that's pushed by a professor in England called Alan Winfield. Mm -hmm about the ethical black box. Mm. So we want to demand that all algorithms are designed so you can unpack the data. Mm. Mm -hmm. So this ethical black box image, you know, that if we suspect something is amiss, yeah. we can actually open the algorithm. Yeah. And we can go into the data sets and we can see, well, hang on here, maybe even unintentionally, right. this data set is leading to discriminative you know, outcomes. Unrecognized bias, exactly. like poorly sorted training sets. So, I mean, this is one very key demand we have mm -hmm. that we must be able to, to trace the data sets. Mm -hmm. And on that, we're also working with IEEE, the big mm -hmm. organization mm -hmm. about, you know, we're creating a standard with them, which will include the demands of ethical considerations in the very design of data sets and algorithms. Wow. That's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's, that's really that's a really cool job as well. Working with them, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So that's fascinating, and I think w there's constantly talk of like coding for the world that we want instead of the world that we have, and yeah. recognizing bias and all that stuff. But we are in the process of using these things now. Yeah. How long do you think we have before we have to have some sort of solid idea of the direction we want to move in? Do you know what? I really think that time frame is short. Mm -hmm. I would say we have three years maximum five years wow yeah and you know the reason why i'm saying this is that at the moment we are already partially becoming slaves to the algorithm mm. and i'm saying this because more and more data is being mined on us mm -hmm. more and more data is now being analyzed mm -hmm. you know the news feed you have on your facebook is different from mine well, your reality is becoming different from mine yeah you know the 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 products you get offered, the services you get offered are different from what I do. Mm -hmm. And unless we s soon don't put a halt to it, but say, well, hang on here. Right, right. You know, who is in control? Yeah. Is it that is it what governments should be focusing on the common good? Mm -hmm. Or is it this increasing individualization, where we are being manipulated, but we don't know by whom? Right. Or how? Right. So I think this whole thing about, you know, if we start putting some boundaries onto, you know, what type of data ownership control system do we want? How transparent should it be? Who should own that transparency and so on? Unless we start really putting some global policies in place yeah. on that very, very soon, then it's, it's too late. Yeah, definitely. So sort of on the on the opposite end of, of that thing, a lot of our listeners are the people who are doing this work and coding yeah. these things and like literally sitting in front of their computer making these things. Yeah. What is the one idea you would like them to sort of carry around with them as they're 
working, thinking about these things, meeting with their groups and their communities, what do you think is the important thing for those people to add to their conversation? I would think the ethical dimension. Hmm. So what, you know, what could be the unintended consequences of what I'm coding right now? Yeah. And how do I somehow cater for for that in how I program my code, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think very much that we go in and say, well, first, sit around the table with your friends, with your fellow coders and say, oh, hang on, you know, when nothing is for sure, right? everything is possible. Yeah. So what do we want to make possible? What society do we want to leave for the young people that follow us and our children and grandchildren? Yeah. And then sort of say, well, I want a world where people still have the possibility to work because, come on, we work for other reasons than just to earn money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We also work because it gives us a sense of purpose mm -hmm. or fulfillment. It gives us social contact. It allows us to be mirrored and to learn because we see other perspectives and so on. If we remove that yeah. and leave the, the agency to the individual, I don't think of that society. Yeah. So I would really like all of these coders to actually sort of really start thinking about what am I coding here and how is it fitting into the society I want? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it seems that it's a very easy question to ask. And of course, it's a much more difficult one to answer. So really put those ethical considerations into it. Consider the, the unintended consequences and then have a, have a goal, have an aim of, of what where do we want to go? Christina Kolkloff, I was just really amazing to hear her talk about, um, from her perspective, what are the big ideas that we need to be thinking about now in terms of the impact of these tools and ideas on how we work and how we value work? I mean, the union movement itself, you know, is uh, triggered by changes in technology that brought about automation and uh, ensuring that there was a voice for workers in that. And I think what we're going to see is that we want all voices across society to contribute to, if there is an automation dividend, as many people say, to make sure that dividend is uh, deployed as equally as we can. Yes, definitely. A fully deployed future, right? Well, that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.